With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. 6,000 feet. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big solo? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. No. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. I want to get with Jonathan Cho, who's a great journalist, and I want to ask him a question, and I'll try and put a sharpened edge on it as I possibly can, because Jay Cho is a very good friend of the show. He works for the Discovery Institute. Jonathan, has it become so dangerous in downtown Seattle that we literally have bullets flying through the windows of daycare centers and attempted assassinations in broad daylight on the streets of the city? Short answer is the criminals don't care. And that's the problem here. The vast majority of Seattle residents, the good people, the business owners, the neighbors, they want to save this city. But you have these idiots who just don't care about the law, They know that the city is down officers, and they know when a drive-by shooting like this happens, essentially an attempted assassination, no one's going to come right away, and that's why these fellows involved in this got away. And I guess when you say they don't care, I would agree with you. that I mean, criminals in general don't care about the law, but even criminals have kind of a sense of self-preservation. They try to do their their dirty activities out of public view, usually after dark, in places where people can't see them. But it sounds like some of this stuff is becoming so bright. They know to a fair certainty they're not going to get caught. The laws aren't going to be enforced. The police have been diminished. The prosecutors don't want it. Some of the prosecutors, not not the uh, city of uh, Seattle's prosecutor, uh, but the King County prosecutor, aren't going to do much. So why do it after dark? Why not just do it out in front of God and everybody? Yeah, and that's exactly what happened on, on Monday afternoon. I mean, in broad daylight, uh, these criminals know the 911 uh, response times are, you know, so high. Uh, officers have to prioritize these types of calls. But, you know, even these shootings, you know, my sources within the Seattle Police Department say, it's no big deal. We need to know if someone's actually been shot or killed. Now, in this case, thankfully, even though the fellow who was targeted uh, was hit, the 47-year-old male, uh, is expected to survive. But again, 
the two suspects got away in the vehicle, a Chevy Suburban, but also the bullets ended up going through the window of the A4 Apple Learning Center daycare. These five-year-olds said on some of the local TV interviews that they were army crawling on their bellies because it's something that they were trained to do. Let that sink in. This central district is one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city of Seattle, and the kids are now trained to protect themselves and army crawl. How ridiculous is that? And just so people understand, this is not downtown, but it's just a little north of downtown toward Lake Union, right? Yeah, Lars, I was going to say it's just a five-minute drive from downtown Seattle. Everything's pretty much within quick walking or driving distance. But this is a very busy area, and this is a historically you know, African-American uh, community, a black community. You also have a lot of immigrants here, Asian immigrants, Somali immigrants. So it really is this uh, melting pot. And the area is on the up-and-up in terms of new businesses coming in. But whenever there's a shooting like this, and whenever there's violence and crime, it's, again, another setback it's like one step forward three steps back and again this daycare has pleaded with the city including council member shama sawant to show up and do something about this and nothing's been done and all of this and the backdrop behind that is an all-time high of homicide so far this year that at the end of the year in the next couple of months is going to eclipse all the previous records yeah, well, we're close to that. The all-time record for most homicides in the year in Seattle was set back in 1994 at 69. I think we're now in the mid-60s, so we're only a few away. Which means we're likely to hit that mark. And I, I only use that as a benchmark so people can say, well, how bad is it? And I just think about people who want to work a job, and you've got people who want to reinvigorate, say, Portland or Seattle, and they say, come on back downtown. You mean to a downtown where if I work and I want a nearby daycare for my kids to drop them off and pick them up conveniently after work, that I'm going to put my child in a daycare where they have to be taught, taught how to army crawl below the level of the windows at the foundation level where bullets can't penetrate as easily? Yeah, this is what it's really come down to. This is obviously not what the mayor of Seattle, Bruce Harrell, wants to broadcast, wants to show. He obviously is the greatest cheerleader and wants to put the city in the best light forward. But the reality is, while the, there are parts of the city getting better, and again, the Pacific Northwest, this region, this city is called the Emerald City for a reason, there are still pockets like this, and this is ultimately what is making this comeback much tougher for the city. Can we talk about this joker, Brett Hamill? I, I, I say joker, Jonathan, because I don't swear personally, and the FCC doesn't like it, but I do. But what is this guy doing when he's told, you know, he's running, uh, you know, against Joy Hollingsworth, uh, who's running for the city council for District 3, and she says, look, on a scale of 1 to 10 when it comes to safe, with 10 being safe, I'm at about a 1. And what was his response, you know, uh, to, to, to that idea that this council, this candidate for councilwoman doesn't even feel safe in the city? Yeah, just to be clear, Brent Hamill is a far-left activist and does not want council candidate Joy Hollingsworth to win. But the optics here are just so ridiculous. Hollingsworth is a black woman uh, who's running, has been endorsed by Mayor Bruce Harrell. Uh, Hamill is a white male, uh, far-left act activist. And this is what Joy is saying. This is the epitome of woke white privilege. As a black woman, she's saying she feels unsafe, but this white kid comes in and says, no, that's not how you should feel you should feel safe and that's what's so absurd about this situation and that's why hamill's getting absolutely trashed right now online
Well, and, and you called, you said that Hamill literally called what Joy ha uh, Hollingsworth is saying, called it fear-mongering to say she doesn't feel safe in a city where bullets sometimes go through the windows of daycare centers. Yeah, and, and here's the inconvenient truth. The question is, where does Brett Hamill live? Certainly not in this neighborhood. Certainly not where the bullets are flying. And that's, again, what needs to be called out, and that's what Hollingsworth is calling out. Uh, District 3, where this shooting happened at the daycare, Hollingsworth is running to replace Councilmember Shama Sawant, who is not running again this year. So that seat is up for grabs, and Hollingsworth at this point is the front runner. Yeah, and, and Shama Sawant, any response from her? Uh, in, in no response any meaningful way? <laughs> None whatsoever. She's completely checked out. Uh, she never shows up to this to these scenes. You know, I think we know that any reasonable and responsible council member elected official at the very least would show up after a crime scene in, in the neighborhood. But uh, Sawant remains MIA. I mean, I even in comparing uh, Sawant to somebody like Joe Biden, I'm not the biggest fan of Joe Biden at all. But he's at least going to Israel, where Hamas has been launching out-of-control missiles, so out of control, they actually blew up their own hospital and killed hundreds of people and then blamed it on the other guys. So won't even show up in the district. At least Joe Biden goes to, to Israel to at least wave the flag and show some support. That's Jonathan Cho. He's a journalist with the Discovery Institute. Jonathan, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. I'll be glad to get your phone calls and emails in just a moment. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Honestly provocative talk for America. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Glad to have you on the Radio Northwest Network as well. We serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Have done that for more than 23 years. We'll mark 24 at the end of this year. And we're glad to take your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. But first, I want to talk to my friend Todd Myers, who is the Environmental Director of the Washington Policy Center, about something near and dear to my heart, uh, and that is whether or not the city of Portlandia's Clean Energy Fund actually ranks as one of the worst climate programs in America. Todd, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thanks for having me on. We've talked about this before when the first round of um, clean energy, so-called clean energy grants came through, and now they're looking at spending another $750 million. 750 now does does it strike you that this is going to be comparable to the kind of largesse that we're probably going to see out of Jay Inslee with his new carbon tax fund too Well in, in fact in Washington state we have more than a billion dollars in, in excess revenue that they didn't expect to have so I wouldn't be surprised if many of these same types of programs are done in Washington state All right so before we blast them I want you to tell me Todd how is it that we can say this is terrible? Because I know every time they, they set up one of these funds and they say we're going to save the planet from global warming and we've got all these great little projects and they're all going to keep less or put less carbon dioxide in the air and all the rest of that, all the promises they usually make. Can we truly, you know, document the fact that these uh, the, these programs are really not worth the money we're paying for them? Absolutely. So the Clean Energy Fund, not surprisingly, given its name, was initially intended and sold as something that would reduce CO2 emissions, greenhouse gases. And in fact, in the report, with all the various categories of expenditures, they list lifetime CO2 emissions reduced. So nominally, the purpose is to avoid CO2 emissions and reduce the risk from climate change. But when you actually look at the amounts that they're spending and how much environmental benefit you're getting, you find that the program is incredibly wasteful. So, for instance, there's a program that is designed to retrofit um, low-income housing to make it more energy efficient. To reduce one metric ton of CO2, they estimate, and these are their numbers, not mine, $10,000 a metric ton. Compare that to comparable projects, which cost $14 a metric ton. Wow. So you're talking about something that is 700 times more expensive than similar, than projects that are that reduce CO2 emissions in the private sector. It's incredibly wasteful. So why are they, I mean, do they just not have things that they could do that would make more difference at a lower cost? Because that's my, that would be my first suspicion. That it, because after decades in the Northwest of governments pushing the idea of weatherization and all the other things that you would use to reduce energy use, um, that, that is kind of tough to find anything that's, that gives you a lot of bang for your buck. I'm not defending the idea. I'm just saying they promised to spend it on this kind of stuff. And then when they actually looked at it and said, well, how much can we do? Up oh, 10,000 bucks to get a metric ton of carbon out of the air. Is that the best we can do? And do you think that is? Or are they serving some other agenda? Is that a possibility? It's absolutely that they're serving another agenda. There are lots of things that we can do to reduce CO2 emissions for far less and far more effective. And the thing that I always point out is if you 
believe that climate change is an existential crisis, if you really believe that, you would never do these things. If I said, you know, my child's education is the most important thing to me, and you said, well, well what, are their, what are their grades? And I said, oh, I don't know. I never look. <laughs> it would be very clear to you that I actually didn't care about my child's education. The same thing is true here. The fact that they are spending so much money and getting virtually nothing in CO2 reductions shows that they have another agenda. And it's not surprising that the money... $750 million, the vast majority of it, is going to politically friendly organizations and projects and things like that rather than reducing the risk of climate change. So they're going to use some of this money instead of to benefit the climate to benefit the Democrat Party. Is it fair to say that? I mean, it's not going to benefit the Republicans, is it? Well, I don't know that it... it, it to be clear, it's not benefiting them directly, but... You know, politically allied special interests are certainly the ones dictating where this money goes, and it goes for projects, you know, that are uh, very, you know, on the left, um, that, that reflect that ideology. But what they don't reflect is benefiting the environment. And so that, I think, is the fundamental problem. When you call something the Clean Energy Fund, and at the end of the day, when it does almost nothing to provide clean energy and reduce CO2, it's a bait and switch. Now, is anybody, including, say, the official auditors, you know, of government, because almost every government has an auditor position in it, are they pointing out this nonsense? No, and, and in fact, what it, when confronted with this, the leaders of the environmental community who support it and city officials say, well, of course, you know, but there, yes, that's true, but there are other things. And so, for instance, there's a quote from the Sierra Club in the Oregonian that says, the primary drive for putting together the Portland Clean Energy Fund was to guarantee that there would be community benefits for the people who are usually F out, left out due to systemic racism. Well, that has nothing to do with the promises that were originally made, right? It is now about systemic racism and other things like that and those justifications rather than you know, addressing what they say is an existential crisis. Okay, so Todd, where can people read the report you put together? It's at WashingtonPolicy.org, and I go through the report. And again, I'm using their own numbers, not mine, and their own numbers show the failure of the program. See, they gave you the rope with which you can hang them, metaphorically, of <laughs> course, right? That's exactly right. I mean, sometimes when you actually look at what they're doing, um, you can see it's very clear that their rhetoric doesn't match uh, the results. Todd, thank you very much. That's Todd Myers, Environmental Director of the Washington Policy Center. To your calls, let me get Kirk on. Kirk, I understand you own a dealership selling Liberty Safes. We were talking about Liberty Safes and the way I think the company sold out its customers by handing over the backdoor combo to the FBI without a warrant. What do you say about that? You said there's a defense to that. Change the policy. They've since changed the policy. That policy was in, enacted back in the 80s when people liked each other. Now everybody doesn't. But um, the whole idea of the uh, access code was originally intended to help customers that had a loved one pass away unexpectedly, just forgot their combo, hadn't used it in a while. Uh, there was really no upside for Liberty other than to help its customer base. And uh, in the case how, Okay, of, so tell me how they changed the policy, because I've been watching it. I haven't seen any change in policy. 
Yeah, uh, and you can go to libertysafe.com. No, I want to hear from you. How has the policy changed to protect us from the government coming in and saying, we want the combo to Lars is safe, I don't have a Liberty Safe, and, and does Liberty now say we won't give it to them? They do. They have to be subpoenaed directly for the safe. Why didn't they do and, that a long time ago, very quickly? Well, I think, you know, again, back in the 80s, they had a different policy. People liked the police and trusted the police back then, and things have changed, and they didn't get to changing it. And it just... That's sad. Thank you, Kirk. I appreciate it. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. Gun Control Explained. Want to stop drunk drivers from killing sober drivers? Ban sober drivers. That's how gun control works. This is the Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, but I've been looking forward to talking about this for a while. Zusha Ellenson is with me, reporter for the Wall Street Journal and co-author of a brand new book, American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. Zusha, welcome to the program. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lars. Well, thank you for that. I, I got to tell you, though, uh, I always try to tell my audience, I say, if I if I dog in the fight, on a particular subject, a bias, I'm going to confess it to them to be completely transparent. I own AR-15s. I love shooting the gun. I think it's mm -hmm. a fair, it's a very well-crafted uh, piece of equipment. It's also, I mean, if you need this as an additional incentive to own one, liberals are scared to death of it because of the way the gun looks, even though it doesn't function any differently than other guns that shoot the same bullet out of a barrel at the same speed and with the same impact when it reaches the target. But the ones that scare the liberals, uh, for whatever reason, uh, just seem seem to get them all wound up. Nancy Pelosi and that whole crowd. Got you, got you. When did you first get your first AR? I'm curious. My first AR, it had to be at least a decade ago, and and mm -hmm. I and I have maybe half a dozen of them right now. But the the point is, they're they're a great gun, and they're they're actually kind of a fun gun to introduce. And I want you to talk about the book though, but they're a fun gun to introduce people to guns with because if you say. Hey, come shoot this 300 Winchester mag, uh, you know, <laughs> rifle. And you say, eh, but, but hold the gun real tight to your shoulder. It's still going to hurt. Whereas the AR 50, AR 15 at least still reminds me of shooting an air gun, uh, because of that well, recoil that's, spring yeah. that's inside of it. But why don't you, why don't you tell the story? Because you and your co-author tell the entire story of this rifle that has so, been so maligned by the left for the last 20 years or so. That's absolutely right, and what you're saying there is key to our story. It's a gun that's incredibly light and easy to shoot. And so we went back to the very beginning of this story, which was the inventor, this guy Eugene Stoner. Now, he's a really interesting character, and we got unprecedented access to his life. His family gave us long interviews for the first time. We got documents about his life and what he thought about the gun. Let me just paint a little picture. He was a Marine veteran. He had no college education, no backgrounds in firearms design, and he was a very gentle guy, actually. You know, he didn't like to swear. When he was upset, he would say, boy, that frosts me. He never spanked his kids, 
And all he did was imagine ways to improve guns. He was fascinated by the engineering behind guns. From the age of like five, he was making little pipe bombs and rockets, and he had this little cannon that he once pointed at a neighbor's house, and his dad had to tell him not to open fire. He, he's just been fascinated with this from day one. His family described to us how they'd be out to dinner and he'd be sketching designs on tablecloths. His wife would say, stop writing you know, gun designs on the tablecloth. <laughs> and he would say, it's okay, it'll wash out, it'll wash out. Um, but what's really interesting is that because he had no sort of um, indoctrination into gun design by, you know, the dogmas of the day, he was able to come up with ideas that were so out of the box that he created a very futuristic gun. I mean, now everyone knows the AR, 20 million people have them. But back then, this thing was like, you know, the iPhone to a flip phone. And let, let me tell you a little bit how he got there. One of the first things he did was he was working in the aircraft industry, making lots of parts out of aluminum, right? And at yep. the time, most rifles were made out of heavy wood and steel. You know, for centuries, gun makers have been making rifles out of heavy wood and steel. But he thought, why not use aluminum? It's this very strong metal that's a third weight of steel. And he made the receiver. You know what part that is. And you're, yep. you're listening the only one that well. has a serial number on it. Yep. Exactly. So it's this really important heavy piece. He decided, why not, why not make that out of aluminum? And that was his first real big breakthrough. And his next big breakthrough was, you know, this famous gas system that, you know, ejects the spent cartridges and loads the next round. And we have these great stories. He He's coming up with this gas system, and the first prototypes are pretty crude, and they're just blowing hot gas into his face. And he's like, ah, this is never going to work. Uh, but he perfects it, and it, it becomes, I mean, just this incredible revolution in firearms. Zusha Ellenson is my guest. He writes for the Wall Street Journal. He's a co-author, along with Cameron McWhorter, of a new book called American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. Um, you, you said that he'd been in the service, he'd served his country, and he carried an M1 Garand, right? And those things weigh about, what, twice as much as, as the average AR? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So he was in, in World War II. He was shipped off to the Philippines where he worked on big weaponry on aircraft, and all he did was tinker with guns in the military. And he carried an M1, and he kept looking at that gun. He kept thinking, how can I improve this? That thing weighs about nine and a half, ten, ten pounds unloaded. And the early versions of the AR-15 that he came up with literally weighed about five pounds, a little more unloaded. So you're right, about half the weight, which is just remarkable. And how did he do that? You know, he made it out of aluminum. And then the little startup he worked at, Armalite, you know, off in Hollywood of all places, you know, they, they made the stock. Ah, hold that thought for just a second. Let's renew that call. I don't know. Are you still there, Zusha? Now, we may have lost that call. Let's see if we can reestablish with Zusha, because I want him to tell you about this book called American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. And Armalite is where they got the AR. I mean, there are people on the left who don't know the first thing about guns. They don't know the first thing about what's going on. They don't know how they fire or anything else. And yet they'll, they'll say, well, the AR, it stands for this. It stands for Armalite. That was the name of the company that made the first ones. Uh, it, just a terrible, terrible situation that the left seems to malign this gun for no reason in particular. Zusha, are you back? I am. I'm very sorry about that. So, yeah, no, that's, that, 
No worries, but go ahead. You were saying that he made this thing light. And the other thing about the Garand was the the ammunition weighed a lot more. It was a much bigger bullet, and the two two three round or five five six round was a lot lighter, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a huge advancement, right? So the military, for a long time, as your listeners know, was in love with these big guns that fired really large rounds, and that's because they thought wars were won by marksmen. There's this real myth of the American marksman, right? And they did serve a role, but as modern guerrilla wars started popping up around the country, you know, during the Cold War, there's this threat with all these communist insurgents armed with AK-47s, which are very good for fighting in the mid-range, you know, these close-range battles. Um, there was some really key generals, particularly Willard Wyman, who realized we needed a lightweight gun that could fire lots of ammo. You know, the soldier that fires more lead wins. And so they decided, can we make, you know, can we make a gun that fires a much lighter bullet? Um, and what they, as you, your listeners know, what they did is they took a very small bullet, very small bullet, but they added a bunch of powder. So it flew, you know, high velocity, small caliber bullet, and they found that it did quite a bit of damage, and that's what they went with in, in Vietnam. Now, since then, but Armalite never really made the guns, did it? It ended up being sold to Colt. Do you cover that? That's right. So Armalite, um, you know, it's a bunch of dreamers out in Hollywood. They're coming up with all these crazy ideas. And one thing a lot of people don't know actually what AR-15 stands for, right? So uh, some people think it stands for a assault rifle, which it clearly does not. Um, others even think it stands for Armalite rifle, which it actually doesn't either. Um, we were told by Stoner's daughter that it stood for Armalite Research, and 15 stood for the number, you know, they had created 14 other weapons before then, so the AR-15 was the 15th, um, but there was a lot of infighting. There was this really uh, oily guy, George Sullivan, who ran Armalite, and he tried to sort of like chisel Stoner out of his patent, try to get him to sign over the rights to his patent for a song. So there was a lot of infighting. They never got it adopted by the military, uh, so they sold the rights to Colt. But there's this famous story. Um, what helped them get the military to buy the AR-15, eventually renamed the M-16, you know what? You're going to have to read that story in the book by Zusha Ellenson and his co-author Cameron McWhorter. The book is called American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. Back in just a moment. And uh, Zusha, thank you very much. We appreciate the time. Uh, glad to get your calls next at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. 
be singing what I'm singing, but I'm just saying what you're thinking. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the program Representative Christine Goodwin, who is a Republican. We wish we could get more Democrats, but it's tough. Uh, representing District 4 and Canyonville. Uh, Representative Goodwin, welcome back. Well, thank you, Lars. I'm really happy to be on your program. Thank you very much. That's quite a compliment. I, I hope I don't make you mad too often. So let me make you mad right now. How many okay. body bags have to stack up before Tina Kotek and her Democrat friends are going to be willing to do something to solve the hard drug problem that Measure 110 legalized in Oregon? Well, you certainly know how to ask the bingo question. Um, you just have to be willfully blind in this state not to see that this is a failed experiment and that we've had the exact opposite effects that the measure, even if it were well-intentioned, I have, you know, it was obviously a Soros-backed ballot measure, and it deceived the voters into thinking, we just don't want to, we just don't want to put those little marijuana smokers in jail now, do we? But that's not at all what has happened, of course. What's it going to take to get, does somebody close to a major Democrat have to die of fentanyl overdose for anything? Because I've kind of run out of things, you know, to, to, to suggest. Because you can say, well, we have hundreds of people dying in Oregon, hundreds in Washington, from fentanyl overdose specifically. Mm -hmm. The numbers are up gigantically since Measure 110 and since the court decision in Washington State that effectively legalized hard drugs. And I've made every logical argument I can. Is it going to take the death of somebody close to Tina Kotek or some other major Democrat to make the difference? I have no idea what it'll take. But we have at least we have assembled... And I've been appointed to the new Joint Interim Committee on Addiction and Community Safety Response. So that is going, of course, the chairs are Senator Lieber and Rep. Croft. And there are two of us from the House side, uh, Rep. Mannix and myself, and then Senator Canope. So the first right out of the gate, we had last week four-hour meeting, and uh, they mostly wanted to kind of dabble around prevention. There's informational meetings. And as you know, Lars, these committees are set up, the informational meetings or the information is determined by the chairs and what basically they want us to hear or want, want us to believe. So we had some discussion on prevention. It went into uh, mobile crisis units and crisis stabilization. But mostly what we're hearing from over and over in Salem are from the protectionists, which are the Democrats primarily, they believe in this harm reduction model. And I'm sure you're aware of it. They just believe that, you know, as long as we keep these folks from overdosing and as long as we keep them in clean needles, eventually they will find their recovery path. Most people who overdose don't, you know, if they're if they're already addicted to the drug, they don't say, wow, that was a close call. I dodged a bullet. I'm going to quit. They just keep on taking the drugs and, and then they eventually get killed anyway. And I'm not suggesting that's a reason to not save them the first or second or third or fifth time. But it doesn't really actually do any good, does it? No, we hear, it was shocking. We heard testimony essentially from these folks working in these um, nonprofits, a lot of money funneled into nonprofits. 
that are not really using any evidence-based kind of treatment. But they would say fentanyl, an example, is such a powerfully addictive drug. It is the dosing of it is so erratic that when they, they don't know these addicts, if, if one pill could not get them high at all, they, the, another pill can kill them. Yep. So, and yet they will, they will take that risk every time. In fact, they went on to say there are no long-term fentanyl addicts because they will not survive their addiction. The problem is you got to go through the process of lots and lots of overdoses and lots of damage to the community before the fentanyl users finally die. And the problem is there will always be new fentanyl users because I think, Ms. Good or Representative Goodwin, if you could get these people to, to actually tell you what, what's inside their heads and what's inside their hearts, they'd say, look, for a while drugs are lots and lots of fun until they kill you. Right. And and so as long as you got something that you know the the cops tell me a average fentanyl pill to get a high on a Friday night is about a dollar. I mean you have to spend ten times that to be able to buy a a good six pack of craft beer just to just to sit down and have a few beers. But you can get one pill for a buck or two and get high on a Friday night. That's going to be very attractive, isn't it? Yeah, it's a rewarding behavior, and and we now we know that addicts don't affect the numbers. I don't know if you read my press release, but yep. with over five thousand, uh, you know, now we of course we have no stick. We have really just made our criminal justice system ineffectual, and so you have all of these quote violations, these tickets, if you will, and of this, that huge number. 120 will really seek recovery services. So out of tens of thousands of tickets, can I can I throw a challenge at you? Try this. Sure. Pick your favorite member from that committee who's from the D party. Could you persuade them to come on this program, and I'll give as much time as necessary, and we'll have an honest-to-God debate about why Measure 110 is a good idea and why getting rid of it is not a good idea. And I would grant them that time if they'll allow me to ask some questions. Well, I have a couple in mind. Um, I serve on behavioral health health care, and okay. behavioral health, as you know, is really mental illness and substance abuse. It's well, let's see, Representative Goodwin, if you can get somebody to come on. I'll have somebody from both sides. I'll moderate the debate. I'll throw in my own questions. I will be as nice as pie. I'll be on my best behavior. But I want to know how many body bags it's going to take before they make some kind of change to save the lives. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you ready for the big show? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Live. This 
is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live and now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls, which I'll do in just a moment. At 866-HEY-LARS. I happen to be pro-life myself, so I'll make that disclosure in the interest. I always disclose if I've got a dog in the fight. But it's, it seems amazing to me that Democrats and liberals constantly have double standards. And then they have those subjects where they say they feel strongly about something. In the case of Democrats in this uh, situation, it is they feel strongly about choice, by which they mean it's a euphemism for killing babies. Uh, they, want to, they want you to have the choice. I don't. I don't. I don't favor that. But Kamala Harris, who's vice president, who could any day now be president of the United States, depending on how things go for Joe. She might even be the candidate for the Democrat Party if they don't have a better candidate by summer of next year. But she gets asked about abortion. Now, you would think that if she feels strongly about this subject, that she'd have the guts to actually say where she stands on that subject. But lately, she has not had the courage to actually say what she actually believes when it comes to abortion. So I wanted to get Evie Osmond on, who is vice president of communications at the Susan B. Anthony Foundation and Pro-Life America. Uh, Ms. Osmond, welcome to the program. Laura, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here, and I just always tell my audience where I stand on an issue, so they don't say, well, you didn't tell us where you're coming from, but it amazes me, that, and I think, frankly, liberals are cowards, because if you say, I truly believe in this, whatever this happens to be, you know, buying all of our energy supplies from China or killing babies, if you actually believe in that, you insist on believing in cockamamie stuff like that, then uh, go ahead. But it sounds like Kamala Harris uh, wants to have her cake and eat it, too. She wants to say, I believe in all this stuff, but would you mind telling my audience what happened when she got confronted on Face the Nation, when she was asked, well, how far are you willing to go? Absolutely, Lars. I, they asked her, and she couldn't lift a single limit, a single week, a single limit, a single boundary that she would place on abortion at all. And then you saw the anchor talk about Roe v. Wade, which Kamala Harris said, oh, yes, I'm for that. But when you saw the anchor list the certain weeks in which she thought, incorrectly, but she thought Roe v. Wade stood for, you saw Kamala recoil and say, oh, no, 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 no. So, no, we're not getting any answers, any limits. I was shocked a few months ago when I was digging into this. I thought to myself, surely Surely there's Democrats that will list one limit. And I can tell you, after months of looking into this, I am still in search of a top-level Democrat who will give me a single limit that they will support. But they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too, because what they're doing is they're saying uh, no limits at all that they will support. But then they're also saying in the same breath, oh, well, we don't support all trimester abortions. But that's not true. There are already seven states in this country, plus D.C., that have no limits. And if we look at the legislation that they're pushing already, the federal legislation that's going to be further than Roe v. Wade, it's called the yep. WHBA, yep, the Women's Health Protection Act, the so-called, um, it goes further than Roe. It lists no limits. It says viability with no definition. But what it actually does, Lars, is it defines that the 
abortion provider gets to decide how and when and how long, and they don't put any limits or weeks on their ass. Well, and, and then that never works in, I mean, in medicine. I might walk into my doctor and say, hey, I'd like you to prescribe this for me. And the doctor says, well, I'm not allowed under the law to give it to you because you're too old, you're too young, or, you know, lots and lots of limits when it comes to medicine. Now, I know the Democrats want to put killing babies under the rubric of medicine. I don't think it's part of medicine or health care, and I don't think it protects women very well when they're unborn women because they don't get protected at all. But is it just the case that Kamala Harris, former attorney general of one of the biggest states in America, doesn't understand what the women's so-called Women's Health Protection Act actually calls for? No, no, not at all. I guarantee she knows exactly what's going on. She's not the only one. We saw Karine Jean-Pierre. We saw Jen Psaki. I mean, we have a video of just endless amounts of Democrats that will either say they're for no limits at all. They'll come right out and say it or they'll play kind of the cloak and dagger politics. But the thing that, that is really just awful that they lie about is they also say, well, even if it if there are no limits, late-term abortions don't exist. But that is such a lie. You can look at Planned Parenthood's former research arm, Guttmacher. I mean, they're pro-abortion all the way. And they even say there's 63,000 abortions that happen in America after 15 weeks. So we know, and we see all trimester abortion centers popping up around the country. And so... Given all that, are they just holding back from saying it because they understand that while they say they're officially in favor of it, they understand the optics of actually letting the words come out of your mouth sound so bad? I mix that up, you know, optics and sound. But, I mean, the point is, that you say, I believe in that. I mean, if somebody comes to me on, say, guns, well, I'm a Second Amendment supporter, and they say, do you think children should be able to buy, buy guns? And I said, well, at a certain age, yes, uh, if I had my druthers. I'd say at a certain age, you should be able to buy a shotgun, which has been the law for a long time. How about pistols? Well, maybe 21 would be okay, but I'm willing to talk about the limits that I would put on. Felons can't own firearms. If somebody said to me, Lars, would you be willing to let nonviolent felons, like somebody who's written a check, you know, a bad check, which can be a felony, uh, can they, should they be able to buy a gun? I said, if the people of that state or if the Congress is willing to pass a law, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with nonviolent felonies, uh, felons being in you know, allowed to buy a gun. It's not the law now, but I, I'd be okay with that. But I'm willing to talk about the limits that I would put on the things I believe in. These people are just flat-out cowards, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the real why, Lars, if, if we want to get technical here, I mean, NARAL, Planned Parenthood. Oh, they won't even call uh, it abortion anymore. In fact, NARAL used to stand for National Abortion Rights Action League, but if you ask them now, what does it stand for? They say it's just NARAL. They don't want to say the A word, mm -hmm. do they? Right. No, they're multi-million dollar donors to the Democrats. And so now what we're seeing is uh, is just it's so egregious in which the Democrats are now captured by the activist voices or the loudest voices in their party. I mean, I'm reading stuff from NARAL, Planned Parenthood and others in which they're saying, oh, you know, we have to go as far as possible. There cannot be any limits. They're not shy about that. But what is interesting to me is the influence that they have on the Democrats and they, the Democrats themselves are playing cloak and dagger politics because they can read a poll just like you and I 
And they know that Americans overall, even after 50 years of Roe, which allowed for late-term abortions, Americans are compassionate people. And poll after poll shows, which you won't hear from the corporate media, show that Americans want significant limits on abortion, at least somewhere around the first trimester, 12 to 15 weeks. Yep, they sure do. And even if we adopted that, we'd still be considered vastly liberal compared to most of Europe. Ms. Osmond, thanks for the work you do at Susan B. Anthony and Pro-Life America. We appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Evie Osmond with us. We'll have her back. And at some point, somebody, some enterprising reporter who wants to make a name for himself or herself is going to ask Kamala Harris. So, the Women's Health Protection Act, that actually allows late-term and up-to-the-last-second abortions on unborn children. Do you favor that? and get a solid answer out of her. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. He may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. (laughs) This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's my favorite day of the week. It doesn't end my week. My weeks never end. They go right through the weekend. But on First Amendment Fridays, we open up the phone lines. Every subject is fair game. And, of course, you enjoy free speech rights. Although, i got to tell you something. I'm going to bring Mark Harmsworth on, who is with the Small Business Center at Washington Policy. Mark. You're not going to believe this, but I always tell people, well, you still have your uh, First Amendment freedoms until the Biden administration takes them away. The Supreme Court, we have just heard the announcement, the Supreme Court has said that it will, and sometimes these get their double, triple negatives. Supreme Court clears Biden administration to contact social media companies about posts that it considers misinformation. So in other words... The, the White House can call up a social media company like Facebook or even X, Twitter, and say, you know what, you've got misinformation up there. Now, the Biden White House, I'm sure, Mark, would say, but all we're doing is pointing it out to them. 
Yes, you're pointing it out to them from the very executive branch of the federal government that regulates the very existence of the social media companies to begin with and can put them out of business or severely limit them if it chooses. So when somebody with that kind of authority calls up and says, hey, I think you should take that down. Uh, I have a feeling the social media companies are going to jump and say, you bet, we'll do it right now, like they did during the 2020 election. Anyway, Mark, welcome back to the program. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Lars. I appreciate it. So Mark Harmsworth heads up the Small Business Center at Washington Policy. Yesterday, I talked to a guest, uh, uh, John Lee, about the crazy new tolls that the state of Washington is now proposing on some of its freeways. I mean, literally up to $54 to drive one way on some of the freeways, the major freeways in the Puget Sound area. Yeah, and that's the what they're basically proposing. If you remember a few years back when they put these tolls in, and I was a, uh, I was in the legislature at the time, very much against them, um, and they put the ten dollar toll in from Linwood to Bellevue. Now what they're doing is creating two additional tolling zones, which is uh, Bellevue down at Renton, and then the existing one sixty seven zone, which is tolled at nine dollars, which is from Renton down to Puyallup and. 167 and they want to increase the tolls from $10 and $9 in 167 up to 18 at peak so the three sections would cost you $54 in each direction if you took them and they were charging the maximum toll that's $108 a day and if if you run the math out for the year if it was at maximum toll that's actually $26,000 a year approximately you'll be giving the state of Washington to drive on the roads that you've already paid for 26,000 bucks and of course this has a small business implication doesn't it yeah i mean a lot of a lot of the calculations are done by the state assuming you go to a 9 to 5 job and you're commuting in the morning and the evening if you're a a business that's trying to get lumber down the road or deliveries out to your customers and you're having to use this freeway during the day and is congested which is what it is now because they've not built enough capacity over the last few years then you're going to end up paying even more because you're going to be running up and down that freeway corridor multiple times a day and you could see businesses spending significant tens of thousands of dollars per vehicle just to deliver product to their customers and by the way this this scheme to collect these tolls how much of this how much of the total they collect goes to the costs of collection that's pretty high isn't it yeah, well, the, that's the big joke right now is originally, joke on the taxpayers of Washington State, originally the, the tollings were put in and the, and the big, you know, the hoo-ha they put out was, the state put out was, we're going to take this money we're collecting from the tolls and we're going to make improvements to the, to the road and to the corridor to ease congestion and help you get to work more quickly. Well, it turns out that even at $10, they're losing money on the system, so it actually costs them more to collect the tolls than the tolls they're actually collecting in the first place, which is why they're starting to look at raising raising the prices here. Utterly ridiculous, and a lot of us saw this coming when they started pushing the system back in 2018 and earlier than that, in fact. Um, but now the state has finally admitted they're losing money on it. And at the same time, Mark, I saw another story today that says that WashDOT, and this was in, I think it was in the Seattle, Times Fish Wrapper, uh, the, the Daily Paper, they said uh, uh, Washdot says it's $11 billion short of being able to just maintain the roads that they already have. 
So that's over a billion dollars a year. And they say, we don't even have the money to maintain what's out there. And I think the numbers even showed a majority of roads and highways in the state are already either deficient or they are due for some kind of maintenance. And Washdot says, we don't have the money. So how, how do we fix that problem? At the same time that a huge amount of money is being spent on hyper-expensive projects like light rail and transit for which there is declining ridership. Yeah, well, there's two solutions to this. That They don't have a revenue problem. They have a spending problem, as they would say often. Um, the first you just touched on there is sound transit. Over the last 10 years, we've shifted our transportation dollar spend away from roads and into transit to the tune of around 65% of our money now goes to transit. The other thing that they need to do is when they're proposing these projects in Olympia, often the legislators will come in and they don't include the cost to maintain the road or the bridge or whatever it is they're building. And so that cost builds up. And as you can see, it, it hits that $11 billion. If they put the true cost of some of these projects together when they actually put them in the budget, then they wouldn't have this problem. They'd have a maintenance fund to be able to take care of our roads. And if they shift that money back from the, the train to nowhere and the and the um, the buses that we're spending uh, often anywhere between 180 and $360 per trip subsidizing these riders, then we would have great roads in this state without any additional taxes. I mean, these are like kids who never learned from their parents if I buy you toys, like a bicycle, and you don't take care of it, I'm not buying you anymore. And I wish the taxpayers would say these, say to these jokers, you, you talked us into buying all this new stuff, the new shiny light rail trains, and you're not taking care of the stuff you already have, like a kid who would be told you didn't take care of the last bike, I'm not buying you another one, that we would just say no. You can't do that. And you can't spend, what, 65% on transit and then tell all the car drivers who are actually paying the bill. It certainly ain't the uh, transit riders that are paying the bill. Uh, we're not, we're not doing this stuff anymore. We're going to spend the money on the people who actually pay the taxes to support it. Yeah, and there was an article just recently in the Everett Herald about a rider that went um, on the light rail, and he said it was great. It only cost him $6, but that trip was not $6. When you take into account the construction costs, the capital costs, the carbon taxes, the low-carbon fuel standards, the gas taxes, the, the the tolls, and all of that, that trip cost the taxpayer about $380 to send him to Seattle. He only paid 6 bucks because that's what they charge you and you could have probably got away getting on there for free anyway because they're not enforcing fares anyway it, it, so, isn't that nuts that, it, this stuff is just yeah. nuts mark we got to stop it we got to tell washdot you need to actually maintain the roads and if you aren't going to maintain the roads we're going to make some big changes in where that money gets allocated that's mark harmsworth director of the small business center for washington policy glad to have you with me on a first amendment friday it's the radio northwest network vote in our twitter poll at large Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. what a vegan actually is? They say cows are bad for the environment because all they do is eat plants and fart, just like vegans. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know that opiate uh, overdoses and opiate addiction, major problem for America. Over 100,000 dead from overdoses last year. This year is likely to be similar, if not greater, than that number. So the question is, how do you fight back against that and still treat intractable pain in patients? I thought we'd put that question to Dr. Henry Miller, our buddy who is the physician, molecular biologist, and senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. You can read what he writes at henrymillermd.org. Doc, welcome back. Always good to be with you, Lars. So I've heard from so many people that if you went back, say, 40 years ago, You'd find people having major surgery, and doctors wouldn't give them much of anything in the way of pain. They'd say, take some ibuprofen and, and work your way through it. And then came an era where they started handing out opiates a lot more liberally, especially some of the newer ones like OxyContin that had time release and all that. And now we've tightened that down dramatically to the point where even people with really tough pain problems can't get a hold of the, legi the drugs that they legitimately need. How do we find a happy medium, and how do we do that and address the overdose and uh, addiction problem at the same time? Well, this is a multifaceted problem, and it requires a multifaceted response. So, as you say, some of it is the practice of medicine. Uh, surgeons especially like to give out opiates because they work. They're very, very potent pain relievers, and uh, patients who get them are not going to call the surgeon's office uh, two days later and say, my, my incision hurts, my bones hurt, and so on. Uh, on average, and this is amazing, uh, they give out uh, as many as 80 pills, uh, 80 opiate pills on discharge from a modestly um, major operation. So that's about um, uh, that's more than 10 days worth. That's about two weeks worth. Uh, and uh, it's not um, unusual for half of these to remain unused and in medicine cabinets and amenable to abuse uh, down the road by the patient or a patient's family member. So, so theft so, and, and, th and resale and things like that. Exactly. So we need we need smarter, more parsimonious uh, prescribing for one thing. Um, we also need uh, passage of some new legislation that's been proposed in the House and Senate called the No Pain Act, uh, which would remove uh, disincentives for uh, surgeons and other docs to prescribe non-opioid. Uh, alternatives uh, or to perform them, uh, things like um, nerve blocks or uh, long-acting anesthetics during uh, simple uh, surgical procedures. Do we uh, not have that now? Uh, well, we do, we do have them, but uh, Medicare in particular uh, discriminates against those and prefers to uh, have surgeons dispense small amounts of, of opiates. So, no, but uh, why do they do, do Is there a, a reason why Medicare doesn't like that particular solution to, to pain? Does is the government cost? need, a, need a, an explanation for bad policies? <laughs> no, no, you and I talk about that all the time. <laughs> of course we do. So the, the answer is I don't know what the original uh, justification was for that. But, but also, uh, for relatively minor pain, uh, the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal uh, uh, drugs like uh, ibuprofen and naproxen work pretty 
is we, we need to get better information out to docs uh, that's more accurate. Um, I, I don't think we discussed this. Uh, in the last administration, uh, the Surgeon General was an anesthesiologist named Jerome Lucas, and for a while he was touting a, an article that purported to show that intravenous acetaminophen, that's intravenous Tylenol, really? is as, as, as good a, is as, wait, wait, wait for the punchline, is as good a uh, an anesthetic as morphine. Now, and, and any medical student who has completed uh, a surgical rotation knows that that is total hogwash. And uh, I was one of those people who ridiculed that, that article, which, by the way, was in the Tehran Journal of oh Medicine. Oh, my God. And finally, Lucas uh, deleted it. But uh, so, you know, if the U.S. Surgeon General is touting this nonsense, you, you can certainly understand that a busy surgeon, uh, a busy dermatologist who does surgery is, is not going to keep up. So well, we need to do better. At, uh, and I guess God. I can understand why the doctors in some cases might say, here's 80 pills and uh, dispose of the ones that you don't use or whatever. And uh, because, Doc, from a practical people forget that when your life intersects with the medical care system, it's so inconvenient, and not just inconvenient. When my wife's had to be in for serious surgery or whatever, they usually give her you know, a certain amount of pain relief, and she tends to say, I'm not taking any of that stuff unless I'm absolutely desperate because she's afraid of, of, of getting addicted or having those kind of problems. But I can understand why a doctor might do that because if the patient has the surgery, he gives them a small amount of medicine and says, call me up if, if you run any problems. So you run out of pills and the pain's still there and you call and try to get a doctor's appointment with a doctor. Oh, yeah, we can get to you in about three, four weeks, you know, and it's going to cost you another couple of hundred dollars to come see the doctor, even if it's covered by insurance. Those kind of practical problems when the doctor says, I'm just going to give you enough to, to you know, carry all the way through. Uh, no matter what you run into, and leave it up to the patient to decide how much they need. You're absolutely right, and you've just described a couple more facets of the multifaceted problem. Uh, there isn't a good answer, but we chip away at the margins, and, and the No Pain Act is one to at, at least uh, get docs to, uh, to prescribe more of these non-opioid alternatives. As long as they work as well. Because because that's that's the concern. Absolutely, and you know, if if patients experience a little bit of pain uh, after a procedure or after a fall or or whatever, that's not the end of the world. And maybe in the cosmic scheme of things, the overall scheme of things, we're better off that way than with uh, the amount of abuse well, of opioids that we see, have currently. See, I'm with you on that, Doc. Because again. I mean, have I had medical treatment? Yeah. The times it hurts, I'm going to the dentist tomorrow morning. But you know, they're going to tell me, well, we don't have to numb your mouth to put your new crown on. I said, great. I, I don't want it if I don't have to have it. Uh, and, and yet I know there are going to be people listening saying, you don't understand how bad this is, Lars. But when I hear about friends who had, you know, say their father had their his chest cracked 40 years ago, and the doctor said, take some ibuprofen, tough, tough through it, because the doctor knows at some point, you know, even when the opiates run out, you're going to have to you're going to have to get through what residual pain there is. And unfortunately, Doc, am I right in saying there are maybe a cohort in America that thinks, no, I should be I should have a pain free life and I shouldn't just have the heavy duty pain meds to take 
the real edge off the pain for the first couple of days, and then when it still aches for the next couple of weeks, you say, okay, I'll work my way through it. Yeah, that would be you're, the you're adult way to do it. Right. You're absolutely right, but not every doc is willing to sit down and have this kind of conversation with a patient. And, you know, especially surgeons, there is such a thing as the surgical mentality, unfortunately. Oh, you mean the one where the difference between God and a surgeon is that the uh, is that God doesn't think he's a surgeon, but the surgeons <laughs> think they're God? That's right. I, I, you know, and I, I have surgeon friends, but I say, you know what? There's, I mean, when you tell somebody, here's a scalpel, you get to cut into a human being, and you have to be right every single time with every single cut you make. When you put that kind of pressure on somebody, you can see why they might think they're a deity, although they're not. Dr. Henry Miller's writing can be found at henrymillermd.org. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. At least someone has a plan for illegal aliens. Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's Conspiracy Theory Thursday, and it's a pleasure to be with you. If you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, and you hear we have some great naysayers on the program, naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. Or if you just want to call in and sound off, it's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And vote in our Twitter poll. You're, you're going to find that at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and Lars Larson. Com, our website. Should Congress dismiss or at least severely punish members of the so-called squad, Palestinian terrorist supporters in the U.S. Congress, should they be punished, dismissed, or nothing done at all to them? I would vote for punishment or, if possible, dismissal. In the meantime, I want to talk to our friend, retired police captain and detective C.W. Jensen. C.W., welcome back. Hey, Lars, how you doing? I'm doing well. I reached out to you, and you realized you were going to have some free time. And I wanted to ask you about this. The cities of Portland and Seattle continue to have a, a massive violent crime problem, and nothing good is happening to change that course right now. And I wanted to get your take 
on what we're going to have to do to break out of this because Seattle is now at the lowest level of police officers in 30 years. Portland and a similar state, both cities seeing much more violent crime, although Seattle seems more likely to set a homicide record this year than maybe Portland does. But Portland has had three murders in about the last six days, uh, and, and it seems to be getting worse, not better. Where do we need to go from here? Well, the problem is, Lars, that they focus on how do we reduce homicides. That's not the issue. The issue is, and you know the broken windows theory from New York City many years ago, if you are aggressive with minor crimes, major crimes are reduced. And because of the drive for equity, we don't stop people that need to be stopped. You know, so the kid that's going out to do a drive-by shooting in a car with expired license plates, maybe you can't stop that in Portland because of Ted Wheeler, but that's the kid. If you stop him for a minor infraction, you stop the major infraction. So until these cities start attacking minor crimes, especially property crimes, it's just going to get worse. And well, and, and when you mention I mean, the, 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 the driver's license problem, if, if in your example, they pull the kid over and it's an under, you know, it's somebody under the age of 21, maybe even somebody with a criminal record, but even if they don't, if they have a gun with them, that's a crime. Except as you point out, the system says, oh, but this kid is black or brown. We can't do anything to him or we don't want to do anything serious to him. So they fail to seriously correct his behavior when they catch him with a gun, which sounds like a felony waiting to happen. Um, and they and then he goes back out on the street, gets another gun and does the drive by anyway. But you're right. If they if they began enforcing the traffic rules, which don't sound, you know, to the average person like a solution to murder. But as you point out, it can be exactly the solution that actually works. Right. And so if you stop the kid in the car with no tags and you find him with a gun, at least you have stopped the next crime right yep. you know so at least you stop the next crime and let me tell you this i arrested um some kids for murder back in the day and some of them incredibly ended up being great people after they did their time and and and, and you know they're all oh my god it's so sad to put people in jail but sometimes jail completely transforms someone you wouldn't believe the number of people who have called this show within the last few weeks it was one guy uh, just a few weeks ago who said look i was hooked on meth i was hooked on it for 10 years this wasn't a casual habit i said what finally straightened you out he said they threw me in jail uh, for drug possession i sat there for 30 days did the hardcore dry out and then came out and decided i don't want to do this anymore and he, and he got some help he got some treatment but the point is it took it took that wake-up call to get him to it. Exactly. Here's what they need to do. They need to build a 500-bed compound for women. That probably won't get filled. And a 500-bed prison, camp, whatever you want to call it. And if the cops come out and you need a Narcan shot, you're going to the camp. And you're there for six months. You know, there's a, a civil, we've had the civil hold for years when they um, eliminated uh, drunken public as a crime. 
So all we need to do is build the camps and then say, if we've got to save your life, you're going to rehab. And I tell you what, if they did that in a year, Portland would be so much better. Yeah, you could actually make a difference in that whole equation. CW, I appreciate it. What do you think about the new chief? You know Day a bit, don't you? The new police chief for Portland. What, what's your, what's your I, honest, I do, unabashed I, opinion? I do know, yeah, I do know Bob. He worked for me when I was the captain in traffic. Um, very nice guy, well-liked, and unlike Lavelle, he has a lot more experience, I think, that they set up Chuck Lavelle to fail, and he failed. And it's because of Wheeler. I mean, every problem y'all have is because of Wheeler. CW, thank you I very know. much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big soul? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. Now, you know that I have been in a labor union before. I didn't like it at the time. I didn't want to be in it. And in fact, in one case, even participated with my fellow workers in decertifying that union. I don't particularly care for unions today. I don't want to belong to one. But I also believe that it's your constitutional right through freedom of association and other constitutional rights like free speech uh, for you to belong to a labor union if you want to. But I'm frequently critical of what the unions do. In this case, I want you to hear about how a labor union appears to want to destroy the jobs of some of its own members and put them literally into physical danger. So to talk about that, I've invited Chip Rogers on, who's president and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Mr. Rogers, welcome to the program. Lars, it is great to be with you. 
Am I overstating it when I say that what this union effort, especially in Los Angeles, is doing to striking hotel workers might actually put their own members in physical danger and even wipe out their jobs? Is that overstating it? Well, that is exactly what is happening. So you are not overstating it. Uh, the local union has a ballot measure, which they gathered signatures for, that would be on the ballot uh, next year if they don't pull it off the ballot, that would require the city of Los Angeles to take homeless people and place them inside of hotels alongside of paying guests. Now, many things are going to happen if this actually goes through. One, people are going to stop going to Los Angeles. Two, which is going to cost jobs. Three, those who remain there and are serving a population that needs medical help are going to be have their 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 own safety put in danger. And so the guests are going to be in danger. The hotel employees are going to be in danger. This is a terrible idea any way you look at it. And I'd have to agree with you because whether people like it or not, they I think there are people who think I'm being mean-spirited when I say that many of the people living on the streets uh, have mental problems. Uh, they are in many cases severely antisocial. Many of them are drug addicted and many of them feed those drug addictions with criminal activities. Put even a small population of those into a hotel, let alone, you know, populating the entire hotel with it, and you do exactly what you're suggesting. You ruin the hotel for everybody else who doesn't want to be around criminals or drug addiction or illegal drugs, and uh, and you probably ruin the hotel's business model as well, which means the hotel, once it's, you know, while they're being paid by the government to house these people, they may be making bank. But the minute those people are gone, or the minute it becomes entirely a homeless drug addiction hotel, nobody else is going to want to go near there, or there, or any place near there, any of the other hotels in the area. And you think you think that's how it's going to work out? And does the union really intend for it to go that way? Boy, I, I'm having a hard time understanding what they intend at all, because I can't imagine any organization, much less a union, who would take action to put their own members in physical danger. I mean, that is the, the height of arrogance and hypocrisy to say that you're supporting your members and then you put them in physical danger. But the reality is the way the program would be set up if it's passed by the voters is that 2 o'clock every day, every hotel in Los Angeles would be required to call City Hall and report to City Hall how many vacancies they have and what their daily rate is. City Hall would then take vouchers based on that information and go out into the community and hand it to homeless people and then homeless people would take those vouchers and go to hotels and check in just as if they are any other regular guest now you mentioned a moment ago the some of the problems this population has to deal with and, and homelessness is a very serious issue that deserves a serious answer this is of course not a serious answer but on the low end, there was a report from Stanford University recently, not a right-wing organization by any stretch. <laughs> no kidding. More than, yeah, more than a quarter of people that are experiencing homelessness have a chemical dependency or have some sort of mental illness that needs to be addressed. Now, if you're taking that population and putting them right next to a family who happens to be in Los Angeles on vacation, you endanger that family. And if you send a hotel worker into that room, now you're endangering the hotel worker. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Well, and Chip, I've seen other cities, including the city I live in, that have said we're going to buy an entire hotel. We're going to, you know, we're going to put entirely homeless drug addicts in the hotel. That's one thing. But this actually suggests that what? From the nicest hotel down to the Motel 6 or whatever is at the bottom of the pile, uh, we're going to put a certain number of homeless people in every single hotel because the city of Los Angeles is going to say, we're going to take every single vacant room, say there are three vacant rooms or five or ten, and we're going to fill them with these, you know, drug addicts. And I guess I've made the point before, Chip, logically it strikes me, 
the only reason anybody is living on the streets. And they say, well, you know, because of their problems. I said, yes, and they've worn out their welcome with all of their family and all of their friends. And that takes some pretty severe antisocial behavior because most of us, we'd call our family or we'd call our friends, say, listen, I'm down on my luck, something happened, lost my job, uh, house burned down, whatever it is, would you put us up for a few nights? And most of us have people who have done that. I, I would imagine that most of these so-called homeless people have already run through all those options and the options are now f closed off by their, their closest family and friends who say, I don't want you anywhere near me. Go somewhere else. That's the only way you end up on the streets, isn't it? Well, and under this scenario, Lars, they would then be able to go check into a hotel, um, which the average rent-paying person in Los Angeles doesn't have the opportunity to do so. But no. I think more importantly is the hotel employees are not trained for this. These people need wraparound services. You mentioned a moment ago renting out an entire hotel. That has taken place. And in all those cases, what happens is the government comes in with medical and healthcare professionals and, and sometimes law enforcement to help these people that need help. In this situation, what they're asking to do and putting them next to, to paying guests is to treat them as if they're any regular paying guest. And that's not the case. They need help. And exactly as you explained, these are people that are they're down on their luck. They've had a bad run. Let's help them in a legitimate way. This is not it. No, and Chip, the other thing when you said just like any other guest, except I understand if I check into a hotel with Tina and my granddaughter and we break a lamp or we steal a towel or we do we kick a hole in the sheetrock, not that we do any of those things, but if we did, I understand I'm going to pay the cost. They're going to take my credit card and charge the entire cost to me, except I assume that the homeless types are not going to be held to that same standard. They can do as much damage as they want, and there is no consequence for anybody except the hotel's owner. Well, and beyond that, Lars, you know, when you check into a hotel right now, pretty much everywhere across the country, you're required to show some sort of identification. The hotel needs to know who it is they're dealing with. Yep. Under this scenario, I can't imagine that, that folks experiencing homelessness are going to be able to have those identification cards. The second part is what happens on day two after the day one voucher runs out? Are you really going to be able to kick them out of the hotel? I mean, law enforcement should be steadfastly against this crazy idea as well. Well, and how about this, Chip? I mean, I've seen some hotels where they have to deal with it. And then the family you talked about earlier, they check into the hotel. And all of a sudden, Johnny and Janie, their kids, are on the floor, on the carpet. They're encountering fentanyl. They're encountering needles. They're encountering methamphetamine residue. Just think about what that would do. And nobody's going to want to stay in a hotel anywhere near Los Angeles. That is Chip Rogers. Chip, thanks very much. President and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association, uh, crazy ideas. L.A. is known for them. This one may just cost millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. 
You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. A message from Lars. I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet. Please be patient. I'll get to you shortly. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and we serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. And if you want to join the conversation, your calls are certainly welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can certainly, if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. You get to go first. Our Twitter poll today, uh, should journalists describe people who cut, cut the heads off babies and slaughter innocent people as terrorists, or should they avoid the word? The Canadian Broadcast Corporation, I kind of expect to get some calls from Canadians. The CBC has told its journalists, avoid using the word terrorist in your coverage of Hamas. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a crazy idea to tell journalists, you can talk about the terrorist group, just don't call it a terrorist group if you can figure that out. So, if you, uh, if you'd like to answer the Twitter poll, it's at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and LarsLarson.com on the web. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, I always try to admit if I have a direct dog in the fight on a particular subject. In this case, I do buy gasoline for one of our family's cars and diesel for the other one. And so I'm affected by Washington State's insane fuel prices driven, I believe, by the carbon tax that was uh, initiated and pushed for by Governor Jay Inslee. And now that Jay Inslee has raised gas taxes, at least, or gas uh, cost at least 50 cents a gallon. It's actually not seen as a tax, uh, even though it really is a tax. Um, more than that. And refuse that that's the reason gas costs have gone up. So I've invited Brian Haywood on, who's the sponsor of the group Let's Go Washington that has an initiative petition to fix what Governor Inslee and his friends in the legislature, his Democrat friends, refuse to do. Hey, Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lars. It's great to talk with you. So before we go any further, tell my audience what Let's Go Washington is all about. So Let's Go Washington, it's a group I started to basically fix what's broken. I love this state. It's beautiful. I'm not trying to change the state. But the legislature over the last five years, and really the last three years in particular, has passed a series of, I would call, uh, incredibly stupid and dangerous um, laws that aren't even in alignment with their own uh, one-party rule. Like, they, they're, they're out of touch with the masses. And so we started Let's Go Washington to begin to fight back and try to bring common sense back with some initiatives, with some common now, sense initiatives. Now, IP2117, 
this is the initiative that will fix this? This will take care of the of the the gas tax. What it would get rid of, it basically would repeal the cap and trade uh, a law that they that they passed. And the, the the big lie about this, even if you accept it, if you accept all of their premises that the world is going to end in you know in thirty by twenty thirty, we're all dead. Um, even if you accepted all of that, and you said, well, what, okay, what is this bill going to do about it? The money goes into a big cesspool for government bureaucrats to spend. It, it, unlike the gas tax, it doesn't fix roads. It doesn't solve anything. It's just a big slush fund. So we're saying repeal it. And by the way, they've collected a lot more on that cap and that carbon fee than they ever expected to collect. Isn't it well north of a billion dollars now? The number I'd heard was 1.5 billion, which was way beyond what they expected. It's just, it's just like Christmas if you're a bureaucrat. Well, and when they say, but we're going to spend all of this trying to fix the environment and, and put out less carbon dioxide. Well, <laughs> uh, look, I've watched legislators do this kind of thing. If you say this is only for X, you say, well, I can find a way to make almost any project fit under the definition of X. Do you think that's fair? That's absolutely true. If you look at the current, just the gas tax itself, not the carbon tax, but the gas tax, there's about $8 billion that go towards... Uh, the transportation budget and from the gas tax, only about two billion of that is earmarked for the roads when it's all supposed to be going to the roads and, and the ferries. So as a result, so, yeah. they have this giant slush fund and they can say, well, we're going to keep carbon out of the air. So we're going to spend it on affordable housing with really good insulation, or we're going to spend it on subsidies for solar panels or windmills or anything they want. In other words, almost anything would fit under that rubric. And I think magically, a lot of their friends in industry will be the ones that get these massive grants. Oh, self-dealing, like Brian, Brian, perish the thought. <laughs> there will be no self-dealing. No. I mean, not not in a place like Olympia, where they took a whole bunch of uh, what low-income housing money and handed it to one of the state lawmakers who's involved in low-income housing. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Well, and and then let's not even get started about uh, Nigerian scams where we lose all our money and nobody's held accountable. No, that's crazy. So. What's it going to take to put this thing on the ballot? When's the deadline, and how can people help you out? So we we need to, by law we need to get three hundred twenty-five thousand, roughly three hundred twenty-four and change, three hundred twenty-five thousand signatures by December twenty-ninth. We um, and we're already where I'm I'm on the gas uh, stop the hidden gas tax is what we've nicknamed it. Um, we're already uh, pushing 300,000 signatures on that one. Holy cow. So you're, almost at, you're almost at the goal, and you've still got till the end of the year? Yes, but I want to turn it in early. So I need people to – there's several things that people can do. They can go to the letsgowa.com. That's our website. And they can find a location to go sign if they want to go out and do something today. Uh, they can also let us know, and we'll send them uh, p petition sheets – and they can go get their friends and neighbors to sign. That would be helpful. If people really want to get involved and they need a job, I'm hiring people to collect signatures so they can, they can do that. Um, and if they're just, if they've got lots of money in their pocket and it's burning a hole in their pocket and they want to help us gather more, they can also donate. Well, uh, let me ask you this, like, you Brian. Know, the, the, Brian, are you doing one of the, one of the things? Because I've never directly, I've been an indirectly involved in lots of petitions, uh, but but only you know by helping either publicize them or tell people about the dangers, and there are dangerous ones too. 
Have you been tracking yes. the names and all that information? Because that's what shot down the attempt to recall the DA of Los Angeles, was they didn't track the names. And they ended up with a whole bunch of mistakes and bad names or duplicates. Have you been tracking them to make sure that doesn't happen? I have. I, uh, I mean, like, we really studied this. I did this last year on a trial basis with 11 initiatives. I found out all the mistakes you can make. I really overloaded the system. Um, and I, I, last year, just to put it in perspective, I got about 100,000 signatures on each of the 11 initiatives. That's not nearly enough. So I revamped everything. One of the things that we found we needed to do was scan them as soon as they come in. And so we, we scanned the data. We put it in a database. And uh, we're not going to use this for marketing, and we're not going to sell the data. Uh, but I, I run the the data against the state voter registration database. That's the way to do it. That's the way to and do it. So you're going to end up, right gonna end up with probably 400,000 signatures, and they'll probably be 99% good. That's Brian Haywood. Let's Go Washington is the organization to put that thing on the ballot. Initiative petition 2117 and repeal Jay Inslee's insane carbon tax scheme. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. And now, this musical message to anyone who wants to indoctrinate our school children. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Like a lot of you, I'll bet you're wondering where we're headed politically in America these days. And I've drawn the sad conclusion that for whatever reason, we seem to be headed towards socialism, which inevitably leads to communism. And I don't you know that's not just using communism as the big uh, uh, the big bad, uh, you know, uh, bugaboo out there. It's you're saying, look. The, the whole country, a country built on capitalism, is now selling itself out to socialism, while there are countries in other parts of the world that have had up-close and personal experience with socialism and said, no, no, we don't want that at all. Well, I thought we'd talk about it with R. Emmett Terrell. He goes by Bob. He's founder and publisher of The American Spectator and author most recently, brand new book just out, How Do We Get Out of Here? Half a Century of Laughter and Mayhem at The American Spectator. Bob, welcome back to the program. Nice to be with you. Now, you were a conservative college student back in 1968, right? And, and this, is where you, this is where the origins of the American Spectator are? That is correct. Tell me how we did get to here. I mean, how, and how do we get out of here? How do we make sure that this great country built on freedom and capitalism, both of those you know, work together hand in hand, how, how do we get off this this? path, this slide we seem to be on towards socialism? Well, I think we just have to say no. And uh, I think we are the majority, and I think the majority will say no if, if they get a chance in this next election. Uh, but we'll have to see what they do, see what the, uh, the politicians do. The politicians don't give us the, the chance that we should have. We should have plenty of opportunities to vote against 
whoever we want to vote against or in favor of whoever we want to vote for. Uh, but I, uh, I'm as much in doubt of what's going to happen as you are. Hey, Bob, I realize that both of us could be uh, indicted and sent to prison for actually saying the 2020 election was terribly flawed and uh, and did not produce the result we were all told it did produce. But I, I've been saying it for a few years, so I, I guess I, I, I just have to resign myself to maybe life in a federal prison one day. But, well, look, but I want to get I your take on Well, Go ahead. I actually was uh, headed to, to uh, prison at one point, as you might recall. Yep. We published the Trooper Gate piece, and I've written about the Trooper Gate piece in, in my book. Uh, we, that, that got uh, the Clintons pretty riled up, and they, try, they cost us a million dollars at the American Spectator. But we said no to them, and we'll say no to the next uh, con artist that comes down the pike. Well, and Bob, you got to be careful because you know what happens to people who cross the Clintons. I mean, they don't just go to prison. Sometimes they end up dead. Well, they do, but uh, frankly, I think what happened to the the uh, the Clintons this time around recently was that they tried to to do too much, and they I and as Tom Wolf said with regard to us, uh, the the Clintons, Hillary would have been president of the United States in 2017. Had the American Spectator not taken her down a peg or a peg or two or three, and well, we did, and I'm very proud of that. So I wrote about it in this book, and I wrote about that and a lot of other things too that I think will um, give give people a chance to laugh. You know, I was I was ta I was uh, criticized by our lawyers for laughing at the Clintons all the way. Uh, through, through every bit of travail, but I had laughed at them, and we turned turned out that uh, the Clintons, the Clintons turned up the heat in the kitchen, and we cooked their goose. <laughs> I'm talking to Bob Terrell, who's founder and publisher of the American Spectator. His new book is How Do We Get Out of Here? Half a Century of Laughter and Mayhem at the American Spectator. And Bob, I mean, I'm a little older, you're a little older, just for the people who aren't. Uh, let's remind them that Troopergate was about Bill Clinton as governor of Arkansas using state troopers to help him secure young women for his personal appetites. And and you may want to go beyond that. Well, you you know, in, in the Troopergate piece the, that, that we published, uh, that really put an end to the sexual revolution. It was, Tom Wolf said, the most historic piece the 21st century, I guess, and it was. Uh, we we were the people that brought Bill up short, and we and I'm very proud of that. I want to ask you, Bob, what what should we make of the the fact that right now we've got the son of a president of the United States who apparently has committed crimes right in front of God and everybody, gun crimes, tax crimes. And yet the, the apparatus of the federal government has protected him, not only when his dad was in office as vice president and is in office as president, but even in between the apparatus of government has protected him. Is there any, under, any way to really understand what's going on there? Yes, just look at the, uh, look at Biden, look at the Biden ch child, and you see people that were paid off time and time again. 
and they've got to be stopped. I think they will be stopped. I'm a pes I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. Well, I'm an optimist as well, and I'm glad to see that you know Senator Menendez from New Jersey has now been indicted. But it it almost starts to read like some Babylon Bee story. Sorry to mention the competition, although they don't directly compete with the American Spectator. But they say, yeah, we ra he was on trial six years ago. Manages to beat that rap. Now he's on trial. Now he's going to be on trial again. He's indicted, and they raid his house, and they find stacks of gold bars, stacks of cash, all kinds of other things. Uh, I mean, it sounds like these people weren't even trying real hard to hide their crimes. Well, they. they the surprising thing to me is how proud these people are and how vain they are and how they'll do anything and they don't think they're going to get caught. I mean, if I had gotten caught, I would have followed him when he was arrested, when he was appearing before a, a judge six years ago. And, and, I, and he got off. I didn't think he should, but he got off. And the fact that he tried the same stunt once again, it shows you how vain these politicians are and they've really got to be stopped and we will stop them i think we've got look at that field of of, peop, of people running for, for the president for the democrat for the republican nomination there's they're a really terrific group of people yeah they are and, and bob i'm a trump part, bob i'm a trump partisan but i point that out to people i say where's the bench for the democrats and you say, well, they've got Kamala and they've got they've got Gavin Newsom. And I said, and that's it? I say, you look on the Republican side, and while I might not personally favor them this time, you can look at a bunch of them and say, they're all great candidates who might well be president, not today, but maybe in five years. Yeah, I do agree with you. And in, in my chapter on, on Donald Trump is, I think, um, cor correct. I think Donald Trump took too many punches, and he, he should have never, I mean, I, you know, I was for him in, in 2016. I was for him before that, uh, but, and he was a wonderful candidate, and he was, did a wonder, wonderful things as president of the United States, but he took too many punches, and that's what worries me about him. He's taken too many punches. Well, I got to tell you something. I admire anybody who's willing to take the punches, just like you, facing the possibility of federal prison, and say, no, I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to be an optimist as well. Bob Terrell, R. Emmett Terrell, founder and publisher of The American Spectator, author most recently, a brand new book just out. How do we get out of here? Half a century of laughter and mayhem at The American Spectator. Back in a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-A-Lars. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. 
So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. People always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. It's hard to say, like, is there a place that's more far left than San Francisco, Berkeley? Maybe Portland. Maybe Portland. But it's like, it's a right con- there. It's yeah, it's like it's Portland. those two places are the, the most far left places uh, in America. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, that's Joe Rogan talking to Elon Musk about is there any other place in America that is to the left politically of San Francisco and Berkeley? And they agree that it's got to be Portland, the most liberal leaning place in all of the United States of America. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls too at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And since the Portland Public Schools are now suffering under a strike by teachers. Portland Association of Teachers is the labor union to blame in that case. I would ask you this in our Twitter poll. If government schools fail the majority of students, and the test scores show the vast majority of students fail in the Portland public schools and in Oregon and Washington schools as well. If the government schools fail the majority of students, do the teachers deserve a big raise? I would answer no to that. You can answer any way you like. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, yesterday, I asked you this about the Seattle Bellevue schools, Seattle area schools. Should government K-12 schools keep empty buildings open? for a shrinking student population. The alternative would be to consolidate those schools and take the resources that you're wasting on an empty building and actually spend them on providing education for kids. And the answer is, well, my answer was, of course you should close the buildings. Are you kidding me? So I ask you, should government K-12 schools keep empty buildings open for a shrinking student population? I answered no. 89% of you said no, but 11% of you said yes. I'd love to talk to the person who says, why, yes, even if that building is only 50, 60, 70 percent occupied, keep it open because we don't want to close schools and consolidate. And it would be like, you know, like somebody who says, yeah, I'm going to keep this big, huge house where I used to have six kids, but now all my kids have moved out, but I'm going to keep the house in any case. If that makes sense to any of you, be the naysayer at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And let's go to uh, Tasha. Hey, Tasha, welcome to the program on a Wednesday. Thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Um, I'm sorry. I'm kind of upset. So, uh, I'm sorry you're upset. Son, what, what's upsetting you? My son goes to uh, Amity Middle School. Yeah. Um, on October 30th, he was using the restroom 
where this boy proceeded to try and force his way into the restroom with him. Oh, my God. My son finally forced him out, got the door closed and locked, and proceeded to go to the bathroom. This boy proceeded to go into the stall next to him and try to watch him from above the stall, like leaning over it. And then when my son noticed, he covered up, of course, and... uh Sorry, this is really hard. No, I can understand why you're so upset. Uh, but I and want to ask you this, Tasha, because I've got to watch the time. But tell me this. Did did the school find out about this? Did your son or did you report my, it to the school? And what did they do? My son reported it to um, the office and to the principal. He was sent back to class for an hour and 20 minutes before he came home and told me what happened. The did school the school did not do notify anything? Me. No, the school did nothing. They did nothing. They didn't notify me. They didn't notify the police. They did nothing. And they made him go back to class for an hour and 20 minutes after this happened. Let me ask you this. Have you called the police? I did call the police, and I called CPS, and I called my caseworker through DHS. Mm -hmm. um, the police have not gotten back to me. I reported it, and I have not heard back from them. How's your son doing? I don't think he really knows what to feel, but I know that he doesn't really want to be alone. He's really tired, which is a sign of depression. Has he was he bullied so bad has, last year, ask, he said he, he wanted to kill to himself. Yet? Tasha, has he been back? What did you say? Oh, no, I won't allow him to go back there. Understood. He is not safe. Are you concerned for, for his safety, you know, that he might take some I action? am concerned for his safety and other, other kids' safety. I've, wow. I was told by someone that he has done this to other kids as well. And the school took no action at that point, apparently. <laughs> The school has taken no action. I don't know if the other kids have spoken up about it. I have just made sure that my kid knows that you speak up no matter what. And that's exactly what he did. Do you mind, Tasha, I'm going to ask if, no, if I'm going to ask if I can get my producer to get your contact information. I'd like to call the yeah. Amity schools. I, I don't know that they'll call me back. They may not. But when you find right. out from the police what action, if any, that they can take against somebody who's done this this kind of invasion of a child's privacy while unclothed. I'd like to know about it, and we'd like to get your contact information. Tasha, God bless. I, I hope your son is well. Take good care of him. Clearly, the schools are not in this case. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated. 
But the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.